No, am I am I here? Uh, I'm here. I don't know if you heard me, but I said good morning or or good afternoon or good day to to everybody. Uh, welcome back to Rounding the Earth. Um, today we're going to talk about a weird topic. Um, it, it, maybe it's not too weird. It, it probably shouldn't be weird, and we'll try to define it well so that it's not particularly weird. But I'm gonna I, I've got a helper today, or at least one. Uh, I've got JJ Cooey in the studio with me, and um, and. Uh, Liam may may or may not be here. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, well, Liam is invited, and uh, he, he may be uh, handling some of the, the technicals here. Uh, he, he's in the chat. He says, "Thanks, guys. Welcome. Good so far." Okay, so so uh, apparently, um, we're, we're for anybody watching, we're part of this process of streaming directly to our locals channel, and we've been part of like beta testing with this. The locals team is working with us. And we're working with them, telling us, telling them when, when there are problems. And over the past month, this it, it appears to be going better and better. So that's all good. Um, so I'm here with uh, JJ. Uh, how are you doing, JJ? I could be worse, Matt. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, recovering from a birthday weekend with the kids uh, or with neighbor <laughs> kids being over here for a sleepover. So uh, I'm doing good. Thanks. Re- recovering from kids. Okay. Um, is, is that a virus? Have you isolated no, the kids? I haven't isolated them, no. I haven't. <laughs> All right. So today we're going to talk about um, a topic that might seem a little bit weird um, on its face. It, it, it's one of these topics where whew, there is the topic and then there is sort of the topic as misused, perhaps. And... Apologies, I'm trying to find a, a tab here that I was hoping that I was hoping would uh, kind of help explain this a little bit better, a little bit more easily. I think I'll find it in just a second. Oh, there we are. I Let's would see. assume that it refers to, to kind of this uh, this dialectic of of governance, right? Yes. <clears throat> Yeah, so I mean, you know, ordinarily, like dialectic is it, it's a discussion method on its face, but you know, anything that becomes methodical in discussion is perhaps uh, a tool that can be, um, you know, abused, right? And if 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 somebody is willing to believe that perhaps hypnosis is a tool that can be abused in terms of directing people's behavior, and I think that that's reasonable. Um, then something like Hegelian dialectic, you know, let's talk about what it is and talk about how it might be abused during the pandemic, because I think the abuse is rampant. So you've got a dialectic, Um, you've got a thesis and antithesis. So a thesis, uh, give us an example. Uh, JJ, what's a thesis that you've seen debated back and forth um, during, during the pandemic that might not be in the right direction. Um, something like the effectiveness of non-pharmaceutical interventions like lockdown and masks. Ah, uh, okay. Um, the effectiveness of masks. Okay. So what's a what's the thesis that you've seen proposed? Um, the thesis is, is that they have to do something, and so something is better than nothing. And they have no draw, and they have no downside, right? It's just it's just the idea that anything that that can help a little bit should be used, right? Um, right. There's certainly no the way that they started. <clears throat> the the cost is very difficult to define at the very least, 
and so there's a problem and then uh and then therefore the you know the public will clamor for a solution um and then the government can roll out a you know pre-planned solution and i think i think the bigger one you know uh, i think this is going to be you know more obvious to most people is you know the vaccines well the uh, reason why i chose the lockdown was because i thought that there there actually in this narrative needed to be quite an orchestrated demonstration of masks working and i thought they did that extremely cleverly with the use of case numbers in asia and the relative adoptive adoptive use of masks in asia and the lockdown in the two islands of australia and new zealand as both anecdotal evidence that masks work because look at the asians and lockdowns work because look at those people down there and for me, the biology of those two things never really added up, but I know that that's the way that they kind of bullied people into believing that these two ideas were working. And then they got us arguing about that, right? That you should put on your mask. It's obvious it works and you're not, you're not with us. Then you're against us. It was this real creating of chaos. And then the clamoring for a solution may be what you're ultimately saying is that, well, we're only going to wear masks long enough until the real solution comes along. We're only yeah. going to shut down the schools long enough until we can get the real solution out. And so here's an argument that I'm going to make within all this is that is that when you look at it on face, once you understand what cognitive warfare is, this has every appearance of cognitive warfare. And, you know, cognitive warfare can be described in a number of ways. It's like, you know, this battle for hearts and minds. You don't necessarily know who the combatants even are. They're just competing for their interests. Um, but I'm, I'm going to say more specifically that uh, part of the game, part of the tactical game is emotional and cognitive exhaustion, right? To bring people to a point where, where, you know, if they're trying to do the right thing, the most rational people are just held back. They're underwater. You know, they're suffering from a flood by even participating. And I have personally felt that, right? The, the number of times that I've had to deconstruct arguments that didn't need to be deconstructed, right? And, and maybe a good example of that, um, I, I think that this is actually what the no virus people are a part of. And, and I, I appreciate like, for instance, Mark Kulak's had a Mark Bailey on his program the other day, and they had a, you know, a good rational discussion. And I think some people need to do what Mark is doing, but not all of us, right? I think a few people need to stand in and have that conversation calmly and rationally, but I do not believe that the no virus camp are good actors. Right. I, I think I think that they add an element of cognitive exhaustion and it's actually a very difficult debate with them. Right. It's actually a difficult debate because they do have a lot of true facts. Yes. And I've, I've said this many times, Matt, and I think that one of the things that was so strong about the results that happened in my mind as a result of Mark's interview of Mark is that when Mark Kulak interviewed Mark Bailey, and then eventually got to the stage where, okay, Mark, 
Well, what's your alternative explanation for, for all of these phenomenon and all of these observations that we've been making over the last 20 and 50 years? Could you consider, for example, the possibility that there are exosomes and that viruses are actually just pathogenic hijackers of a communication system that exists in the body that we haven't really been aware of, that we've been ignoring, or we've been even made to ignore by false hypotheses and theories about how retroviruses work as pathogens when we might be completely mistaken about this. And his answer was almost devoid of curiosity. Yeah, I don't know much about those those things. <laughs> and yeah. to me, that lack of curiosity is where where it, it it solidified why that position doesn't hold water with me. Because if you think that there are absolutely no viruses and that all, most or all pathogenic diseases have been made up, then you've got to come up with a plausible biological explanation for all of those observations that make sense in modern times so that we can move forward. You can't just say that, well, whatever they told you is nonsense. None of that's, that's like, it's just ghosts. But then you're, you're left with a lack of understanding at the end of that. And that's just not acceptable to me. I'm sorry. <clears throat> yeah. And, and it, it, oh, what was I going to, uh, okay. And so I, I'm going to throw this out. Um, when I was in Austin last month, I was at uh, the Greater Reset event for just uh, like three hours. I was invited there by um, uh, Rebecca, who's a member of uh, Operation Uplift. Um, she's awesome. She does the uh, she does this like photo journalism or, or video journalism. Excuse me, video journalism mostly. Um, a lot of times, and, uh, and she does the the you know cameras and whatnot for a lot of uh, the events with those guys. Anyhow, I, I went and visited her because she invited me for like the last day. Uh, JP Sears did a bit. Um, he, he's a lot of fun. Uh, I got to talk to him afterward and, and that was nice. It was nice to get to meet him. Uh, and Zuby performed. I'd never seen Zuby uh, perform. I did not get to talk to him. I, I thought about it, but I was in, I was engaged in a conversation late in the evening and I didn't want to, you know, uh, leave my, my conversation buddy, but <clears throat> oh, somebody that my, my final conversation buddy at the end of the night uh, was a woman um, that I met uh, the previous year when I actually attended the full conference um, she introduced me to somebody who runs a hemp farm who mentioned that in 2020, she got several people together and this included Andrew Kaufman. And I believe she said Mark Bailey and some other people and, uh, to get them on message together. And I think that she was essentially admitting to me that she was the organizer of this sort of operation. Like this, what, like, let's, let's be clear. Uh, and, and I could, I could find this person's name. I could point to their website. I've, I've still got their website up on my phone. Cause I, um, I, I don't remember her name. It, it's a woman and a husband. Um, I, I don't necessarily know that they were bad actors. Their, their intent was bad. Maybe they are, they are believers that there are no viruses or, or maybe they're believers that there are no pathogenic viruses. I think these two statements are very, very different, by the way. Absolutely, yeah, they are. I, I, there's so much wrong with 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 the the lack of 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 specificity that they use when they talk. And on some levels, they apply this intense scrutiny and and attention to detail to a few papers. But then when you ask them to put that same level of scrutiny, 
onto some other people that they hold up as interesting. There's no scrutiny at all applied to those people and to those claims. And so I find that part of it really disheartening. Um, the best example I have, and I'm going to keep bringing it up, is that several of them, like Tom Cowan, um, have promoted this person from New Zealand named named Veda Austin. And if you if the viewers look up Veda Austin on on the video platforms, you will find a woman from New Zealand who claims that if you freeze the water from your dog bowl, you can get ice pictures of the emotions of your dog. If you drink water or hold water with a thought in your mind and then freeze it, that water will contain an image in the eyes of the emotion that you were feeling when that water was rearranged electrochemically by your emotions and then frozen in that state. And she has entire presentations about how water has memory, but not in a, a memory like a memory of the proteins that were in it, not a memory of like the memory of the DNA that was in it, like Montagnier was telling us, but memory of emotions of the people that last held the water. And that just seems crazy to me that people who say there's no viruses are then immediately promoting something that's obviously hokey. And so then you, you get yourself into this trap where they entice you into thinking that they're really, really smart. And then now come over here. And these are the things I'd like to teach you about. Oh, this, is, this is really interesting because I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on the no virus sure. argument. Sure, um, sure. But, but, you know, what you just said about, um, you know, there being sort of like propagation of information in this medium, which is the dog bowl, you know, okay. Have you isolated the information? And, and I, and I don't even mean that snarkily, right? Like, the idea that you could make a statement like that as if as if you have this medium in which this information exists but not understand the question of what does it mean to isolate something right um you know it, it, somebody on twitter uh did this with me last night they were like you know um just the fact that they said something like the fact that no virus has ever been isolated i'm like you mean other than the thousands of times that they have been you know, and, 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 but, you know, I, I went further. I did ask the question, what do you mean by isolate? And he never answered, right? He did come back at me, but he refused. He, he didn't answer that. And I told him, look, if you're not answering that, all you're doing is parroting a slogan, right? So this is, this is where it gets, um, it gets a little bit weird. Now, yeah, we, we could talk about why it is some people within that landscape are hokey. I'd rather not do that. I'd rather, you know, steel man lionize like the, their, their best you know, uh, advocates, you know, well, whether that's uh, Andy Kaufman or, or you know, Mark Bailey. I do think it's ironic that um, Kaufman's name is Andy Kaufman. Or he goes by Andrew, I guess, most of the time. But uh, that just that, that kind of makes me giggle a little bit. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the funny thing is almost nobody begins with how do you explain chicken pox? Mm -hmm. For example... Like chickenpox seems like the the biggest slam dunk because mm -hmm. billions of people and and maybe maybe the youngest people in our audience didn't go through this right, but like I did as a kid when I was four years old, my parents took me to somebody's house. I actually remember sitting and watching TV and eating popcorn with this other person and wondering why am I here? These these aren't people that we know. <laughs> I remember that at the age of four, and then I remember like and then I'm sick for a week, right?
and, and yeah, I didn't I didn't have such that kind of experience. I had the experience where I think it was when I was 14. Um, somebody in my high school got chicken pox and my parents were like, well, it looks like you're finally going to get it there, buddy. And uh, the doctor, my family doctor had always said that he's either had it and you didn't know it or in the next couple of years, he's going to get it really hard. And that's just the way it is when you're a teenager. If you get chicken pox, it can be really heavy. And it's lame for a teenager because you you are extra sensitive to, you know, the the morphing of your body and everything. And so I've got a couple scars where I just couldn't leave it alone. You know, like it, it really got me bad. I think I had hundreds of, of pock marks on my body when I was sick. It was pretty intense, yeah. but yeah, that's right. It, it, it wasn't something that anybody in the community didn't understand how it worked. Everybody was well aware. Oh, the chicken pox are around. Did you have it already? It went, it went all around the school like that. Have you had it? Yeah, I've had it. I've had it. Oh, right. Cooey's going to get it. You know, there's something about the no virus argument that somehow precludes people from thinking first of like the simplest, like, I, I think, I think the chicken pox argument is it's a slam dunk. I don't, and by that, I don't mean that the argument's over, but it's such a slam dunk because how are you going to explain that? Right? Like here's a model for one of the few pathogenic viruses. And, and let's be clear. I, I think, most viruses are not particularly pathogenic or that they, they would only be pathogenic under very specific circumstances, right? And that we, we co-evolve with viruses, we incorporate them into our genome. And, um, and, and you know, th th this even has effects on our genome, the way our immune system handles itself, you know, uh, you know, turning on and off certain genes or um, whether or not, um, you know, genetic material gets inserted in an intron or, you know, just all, all kinds of things that, that affect, you know, what we are, were a process of coevolution with these viruses. So there, there's so much about the model of viruses that is hard to knock down. Um, but it, it bought a book that I just started reading. It's written by a German guy. And he makes the argument that um, evolution is not driven by random mutation, but it's driven by virally directed mutation and change um and it's a whole it's a whole collection of of primary papers that are from all different viral virologists from around the world that make the argument that we need viruses to fuel evolution it's the primary motor mover of evolution it's a really i mean it's i can't say that i've read anything in it it just came yesterday but i'm really excited about right. it uh, remind me later. Send me a link to that one later. Okay. Um, this guy I, I, is a member of a group of biologists called the Third Way of Evolution. We should look that up later, but they're really interesting folks. Yeah. Last year, um, like maybe 13, 14 months ago, I met Stephanie Sinoff in person at the um, Wiser Traditions Conference. And I got to talk to her for about 20 minutes. Uh, and, and in that 20-minute conversation, she brought up the idea that um, you know viruses are part of a you know, uh, nature's communication mechanism, right? And and that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, it's like, uh, I, I want to buy into it. I, I'm not going to buy into it completely because I haven't spent enough time thinking it through, but it but it does seem like uh, a very um, a very good model, one that seems natural and easy to, for me. Our to friend, our so friend. Our, you know, uh, JJ, I'm going to interrupt you here because I, I do want to move on from the no viruses stuff. I, I, I felt like this was like a good topic to start the conversation. But what I want to focus on, though, is overall, you know, the Hegelian dialectic 
And, and what I want is for people to understand this as well as possible and think through all of the different things that we've seen, right? And, and think through which ones of these might be sort of psyops, right? Because it, it does become, it, it sounds a little silly to talk about psyops at times because <clears throat> for so many years, uh, the impression that people have been given is you talk about a psychological operation and you're automatically wearing a tinfoil hat. As opposed to, well, we know that these methods exist and we know that people have interests. And if people have interests and understand how to use these tools, would we think that they wouldn't use them? Right? So to understand, you know, to understand that, um, you know, Hegelian dialectic, which begins as a logic forming tool, right? I mean, dialectics go back for, you know, dozens of centuries, right? Uh, you, you have, um, you know, different versions of it, different forms of it, but, you know, it's a natural thing to understand the, uh, I don't know, the anatomy of uh, ideation and of debate and to try to do it in a way that's organized and productive and useful. But then we are human beings and we have it, different ways to put it, you know, maybe system one, system two thinking, you know, the rider and the elephant, um, we, we, do, we do a very slow job of Bayesian updating, of taking what we have learned and the information that we've learned and reprocessing so that we do not get emotional with a lot of arguments. And I think that a lot of sort of the panopticon of societal control is about constantly testing what pushes people's emotional buttons Therefore, a controversy can be presented. And, you know, it, it, that controversy is where you have the introduction of a problem and then you have a pre-planned solution. And so the problem can be framed in such a way that people want those with power levers to do something about it, do something quick. It's almost like, like people are like, you know, sitting around or they're, they're going about their daily lives and suddenly they're showered with information that makes them anxious they're not even really participating in the debate because it's happening on a parasocial level. And this is actually uh, what my last article, my article from last night is about. Um, I, I was skeptical the moment I saw, you know, the Woody Harrelson on Saturday night live. And, and I'll be honest because of the amount of the, the number of topics that I have to pay attention to, because I'm, I'm less specialized than most of the people doing, you know, pandemic or plandemonium controversy discussions, right? Um, I talk about finance, I talk about economics, I talk about biology or, or statistics, or whatever. Um, I, I'm paying attention to enough things. And I took a um, kind of a long, long weekend. Um, but it, everybody else saw this before I did. But when I saw it, I looked at it. And I looked at the way people were responding to it. And I thought, I thought, gosh, you know, like th there's a very good chance that this was, you know, kind of set here for us, that, that Woody Harrelson was allowed to come out at this moment. But, and we've had several people come out, right, and, and come out in different ways. I mean, we've had the Emily Oster come out with her finger up and, you know, okay, you were right, but it wasn't because you're smart, you can eat cake, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, and then we've had the Scott Adams 
who basically said the same thing. You were right because you were right because you were illogical, and this just happened to be the the tail moment. Um, but then we've had uh, you know some sort of what appear to be at least on the surface honest changing of sides, and that would include Steve Kirsch, Robert Malone, uh, Mohatra. Uh, it, uh, is it Asim Mohatra? Is that his first name? Uh, you know, and, and I, I'm not saying that, um, you know, maybe some subset of those people are bad actors. You know, there's going to be hundreds of them if I make a list. Some, and, and then uh, maybe the majority of them are good actors, you know, who, who are actually changing their mind and, and, you know, coming over to a different perspective. But when I see the celebrities in particular, I hone in and pay attention. This is Saturday Night Live. This is a big audience. It is also a place that has been, you know, historically um, a platform for major societal discussions. So was he just sort of allowed in on this? And I wrote my article. It a, it's a brief article. It's one of my shorter articles. Um, and I said, you know, be, be careful. In so many words, I was like, you know, he would be the perfect person to deliver this message in many ways because he has kind of a rags to riches story. There's a lot about him that's, um, you know, uh, charming. And, um, you know, I said, uh, well, you know, will there be an o a James O'Keefe moment where he's like pushed off the ledge because he came out and said something, right? So <clears throat> one of my readers pointed out that, you know, five months ago, Woody Harrelson was with Bill Maher on Club Random. I, I'd never heard of Club Random. I mean, I know who Bill Maher is, but I guess this is his, you know, podcast where he hangs out and, and I don't know if it's like sort of Joe Rogan, maybe they're, they're smoking pot, maybe they're not. I have no idea. But, um, you know, they're on here and, and they have this discussion that goes on for, I don't know, a couple of hours, but at minute 47, Bill Maher and Woody Harrelson are discussing you know, all the crazy stuff during the pandemic. And Woody Harrelson says a lot of what you might con consider like the level two truths. And when I say level two truths, I mean that in the sense I had an article, I don't know if you if you saw this one, JJ, I think we may have briefly discussed it though, um, where, you know, during 9-11, you know, you have the first order truth, which is um, we have to go get the terrorists. It's about the terrorists. The second order truth, which was it's about the oil. Right. The third order truth, which was it's about the petrodollar and the fourth order truth, which is it's about control of, of that entire sort of encircle, uh, uh, encircling of, of Asia and making sure that nobody else has um, good trade routes without having to pass through essentially U.S. controlled territory. And, and you know, maybe I missed some steps in there. The point is, the point is, if you keep people arguing between level one and level two, that's a great example of how the Hegelian dialectic can do the damage that it does because it takes a lot of energy to get down to this, oh, well, really, we needed to go to the Middle East. Maybe we trained a certain cadre of terrorists ourselves. Um, you know, maybe we took control of certain resources, not in the same sense of, oh, hey, we went and got the oil and sold it, but in the sense of, uh, you know, in the sense of, well, that would be too, um, that would be too straightforward. You know, what we need is control of the trade routes.
control of the economics, and then we can profit in a more subtle and invisible way that's hard to put a finger on. So I'm, I'm viewing this this way, and under my model, it makes the most sense to, to you know, stand back and look for the clues that an actor was sort of prepared for this. And we can see five months ago, Woody Harrelson, um, it, he already said what he was going to say on Saturday Night Live. In fact, he went deeper with it. He didn't say it in a comical way. On Saturday Night Live, he went and said it in a comical way. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to kind of look over and see, um, you know, what people in the chat are saying. Um, I think one of the things that... Um... You know, this isn't a particularly new to me um, either, because I've been saying for quite some time that this is, um, it feels like a multi-pronged attack to try and get people to turn on the United States all around the world and turn on the United States for each of their own reasons. And I think this kind of comes back to what you're talking about here. I think the the previous century was governed by a dialectic that put nation against nation and people against people. And the stories were about nation against nation and bad guys against good guys. And they have now pivoted their ruling strategy. And I said this at minute one hour and 32 in my last stream and the next six minutes after that are almost perfect fluid description of this. They have decided that the intellectual space of public health is the space within which the globe can be governed and you cannot govern the globe by telling people there are bad guys over there and good guys over here you can only govern the globe if you divide every nation on the same line and hold every nation to the same standards and so they're not doing it yet but they plan to and i think that's what the public health pivot is all about they're not going to put america against the against another person or another group anymore. They, they, they do that on the surface, but in reality, the idea is to, to enact this, this global level of control that is independent of, of nation states. And that means that this, this dialectic is going to move from being dependent on different state actors to being dependent on a sort of global theater that supersedes those state actors. That's what scares me the most about this. Uh, I'll generalize that point just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Public health right now, because public health has the strongest narrative of the array of possible invisible enemies, right? Um, but right now they are working on technologies, you know, uh, deep fake technology. Uh, that seems like something that, that has been developed for sort of a, a, a panopticon level of of control and somebody mentioned uh, a movie i'm gonna see uh, i guess i don't still have it up uh it was called like a a darkly scanner mm -hmm. something like that maybe somebody in the chat can uh can help me remember uh, uh, a scanner darkly excuse me a scanner darkly and, uh, and this is philip k dick and uh, whom i've only read a little bit of uh, so I don't know his work broadly, and I didn't know that was him. I didn't know that a movie had been made, but I went and looked at this movie, and it's Woody Harrelson, it's Keanu Reeves, some other people. And this is 2006, and it's done in sort of cartoon form, where it's clear that the actors actually acted out the movie, but then they used whatever technology they were using at the time to make these cartoons sort of move with them. But you could have put different faces on the actors. 
right? And I feel like maybe that was the beginning of deepfake type technology. And now that more people are aware that the DOD, for instance, has worked very closely with Hollywood over the years, developing these technologies along with the movies, then, you know, it, it makes uh, a lot of sense uh, that, you know, the DOD's propaganda arm, um, the psychological operation, warfare operation groups, the POG groups, uh, would be sort of a part of all of that and would also have access to a lot of these actors. Uh, I've been, I've been told by, or there was somebody uh, I know who was involved, involved in one of the pod groups who referred to the army as having the world's largest acting school and the world's largest special effects school. And that when you go to something like a SIGGRAPH conference, that you're really going to a DOD conference. And by the way, I've been to a SIGGRAPH conference and they have some really, there, there's some really sophisticated, very smart people at those conferences. Um, not the type of people that you would normally see interviewed about Hollywood, but, uh, but I was there, I was discussing, you know, um, uh, the use. I, I had a friend who worked on some movies, including, uh, meet the Robinsons and, um, uh, something like the fathers of Iwo Jima or something like that. He did the bullet effects in that, in that one. Um, he did the reflection effects in, in meet the Robinsons. Anyway, I was there and I met his boss, his boss, like, you know, the guy who brings them into projects. And that guy is a very serious mathematician. You know, if, if I've had conversations with like three or four applied mathematicians who really impressed me, that guy was one of them. So anyhow, um, John uh, Sucks jumps in and says, Woody Harrelson's father is rumored to have been involved in the Kennedy assassination. I've never heard this. I wouldn't have known, but I do know that Woody Harrelson is from the Dallas area, right? Not Dallas, but like a bit outside. And that his father was a hitman who, you know, served time for multiple murders, as, as far as I understand it. So I suppose that's plausible, right? It's at least worth thinking about in terms of who Woody Harrelson might be. He was also a guy who was in, you know, natural born killers, you know, Quentin Tarantino written flick. Um, anyhow, so. Have you have you heard or seen the. Um, trend on the internet or the the memes on the internet right now where they're pulling from Metal Gear Solid 2 and in Metal Gear Solid 2 the the theme of the story is that they use maybe I should slow you down I have no idea what you just said Metal okay, Gear so Solid there's a, there's a video game that came out I believe in 2010 or 11 called Metal Gear Solid 2 okay. which was the, the, the sequel to Metal Gear Solid and in this thing, you play a secret agent who is being double played. So you don't realize that the guy that's running you is actually the bad guy. And it turns out that it's not even a bad guy. It's an AI. And the AI laughs at you at the end of the game because it says that we, we let you have these technologies on purpose because we want you to complain about fake people on the Internet so that we can require you to have digital ID on the Internet. And then your character says, no way, nobody will ever do that. And then the AI says, oh, you don't think so? Your bank isn't going to risk dealing with a fake person. So you're going to need your digital ID just to pay for the internet that you're using. And then we'll we'll use this, we'll slowly outlaw AI because, you know, we got to protect the teenagers because we wouldn't want them to have anonymous chat because they can get damaged by it. They were just parents in the Senate begging for regulation on social media because their kids committed suicide 
They didn't want the kids off of social media. They want social media fixed. And so it's really scary because they're essentially already in front of Congress asking for regulation. And the only regulation that would work is digital ID on social media. That's exactly uh, where Ah, uh, uh, so that's that's one of the avenues of how that game could work. And I'm going to say this. Um, I know enough about the development of artificial intelligence. Uh, I know people who you know work in the space. I've had students go and work at the space at uh, all kinds of different projects. And I, I you know, have conversations with them. I, I was involved. I mean, my, my last job on Wall Street, I was doing machine learning type of, you know, programming. Uh, you know, how, how would you, um, you know, what kind of algorithms would you want to constantly do certain types of trading. I was doing like stock pair trading and coming up with algorithms. Um, the, the discussion that happens around artificial intelligence is, I just want everybody to know, it's as fake as the discussion that happens around a lot of what's gone on in the biology during the pandemic. And I'll, I'll explain some of that. Um, there, like I, I had a conversation with a guy who, you know, during the pandemic, he was, he was just nuts. Uh, he would just mock people for having, you know, views that weren't the, the narrative view. And he would get a lot of like likes on Facebook while doing this. Um, but he, you know, when I was still friends with him, he had, uh, he had just left Google. Uh, he was an engineer at Google and uh, I talked to him on the phone one day and he, and he um, made it a point to tell me like, we're this close to mapping the human utility function. And this is like five years ago. And I'm just like, I'm very skeptical, but I let him talk. Right. I'm just, you know, and I even asked him some questions like, what is the human utility function? And like, he couldn't even define it well, right? He just knew that they were that close to mapping it. And I'm just like, how do, how do you know? Like, you know, and if you can't even define a thing, how do you know that we're close to mapping it? You know, what, you know, five years later, my car, you know, my, the directions in my car are no better than they were before, right? Or, you know, let, let's look at, or actually I'll come back and maybe we'll talk about domain in a moment um, because that's some, some artificial intelligence nonsense right there. But it's, it, you know, there are all these ways that you know that they're lying to you. And I'll give an example of one. Um, I studied something called Lyapunov exponents. And this is one of those conversations that, you know, you're going to need a, a serious mathematician to, to you know talk about on a technical level i'm going to dodge talking about it on a technical level except to to kind of explain um you know Lyapunov exponent would be like a deviation between two functions and if one of those functions is you know your utility function what choices you would make and you know i i am not sure i believe that's an automata function right or if it's an autonoma function automata function it happens on the most fundamental level of universe computing that the idea of trying to compute it outside of itself is nonsensical because you would need, you know, you would need like all the power in the universe to power a computer to keep up with it. That's fine. But it, it, I'll, I'll recast it as this is a monkeys on typewriters problem. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I know that one. <laughs> yeah, this is, you know... It, um, and, and this even assumes that we can define a human utility function, right? But Lyapunov exponent would be like the deviations between that and whatever function is your proxy function that your computer is generating. And your least Lyapunov exponent, that's what your least Lyapunov exponent is, is, is that smallest deviation. 
And when you're doing something, so the, smaller that, the smaller that exponent is, the better your proxy model is. It should be. That's right. You know, that would be like a way you would back test an AI system for trading stocks, for instance. Yeah. So that that's work that I did. Right. I'm not an AI guru. In fact, I don't even program anymore. I haven't programmed in about 20 years. Um, but, uh, you know, that um, that that it's a level of sophistication that is hard to even define to move forward with. So. So can I just throw something in here really quick? Cause it's super relevant, but I just did a stream on Robert Malone yesterday where he was talking about his early career or it was two days ago. And he was talking about how the reason why he went into retroviruses is because when he was in the department where, where all these Nobel prize winners were, he became convinced being surrounded by these people that within 10 years, there was going to be a gene therapist at every hospital that was going to be fixing childhood diseases with retroviral gene therapy. And that's the same level of we're five years away from getting the human utility function. We're five years away from killing, from curing all genetic disease with retroviruses. You need to study with me because we are 10 years away from solving everything. These are the same kinds of ridiculous statements that have moved this ship in this direction for so long. People telling us five years from now is going to be the breakthrough that makes us gods, basically. It's crazy. I'm just throwing up a message because I love our community. <laughs> uh, a lot of people who uh, who watch us uh, know each other at this point because uh, they get into these different groups and talk with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, anybody watching, uh, if, you, if you come over and you join uh, Locals, um, there's a bunch of people there right now having a live chat uh, while watching this stream and, and people can join in that chat and people wind up getting to know each other. Um, so anyhow, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it, basically they introduce a conversation that is on a technical level, specialization of specialization of specialization, right? It is, it's deep on a science level, too deep for any one person to just hey, in my free time, I'm going to go there and learn all this, right? And, and maybe maybe, maybe some of us could do that a little bit, like within certain pieces of it, but it's a lot of work. I mean, obviously, this is what, you know, educated people with high IQs devote a, an entire lifetime to. That's not easy to catch up with on your free time. You're managing your kids. You've got your own job. That's a lot of work. So it's an almost impossible um, you know, information game. What you need is enough people with proxy trust who span the arc of that knowledge, who are willing to sort of submit to, I don't know, public testing of veracity and honesty in their opinions. Absolutely. And that's that's that seems to be the only solution to this problem where, you know, it, it, the Hegelian dialectic where we are, you know, uh, problems are thrust upon us. They may be even be th- even the way they are thrust upon us may be the actual new technologies, right? Whether it's deep states and you know, there are a lot of people who who predict right now, oh, the UFOs are coming when they run out of you know when they run out of uh, problems, they're going to throw aliens at us in some way at some point. And I think that that's actually plausible. Absolutely, it is. I mean, but the difference will be: are we are we being shown an elaborate hologram generated by the Harp Network in the in the ionosphere? Then we're told is a is a UFO, or you know, are we 
and that was a bit obviously that was a little bit tongue-in-cheek but but i've been having this feeling for a long time that we've gone from crashing real airplanes and then explaining what happened and acting on it to creating whole mythologies that can be told in secret meetings and also on tv and control both the government and the populace with fake narratives rather than real real politic which is how they used to do it we'll get a real bad guy to kill a real good guy and then we'll start a real war with real deaths why waste all that money and time <clears throat> i'm going to share this just because I, i'm suddenly a little bit fascinated somebody just jumped into uh, one of our chats and said um, that Woody was the kid on his dad's shoulders on the grassy knoll. What? That's fascinating if it's that true. Sure is. I, I want to see if I can track that information down because that is fascinating. I, well, I have I to add that to my article as an addendum. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, they, like uh, you know, I have no reason to doubt this person who just said it. I mean, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Uh, you know, and I, I don't know how that information comes to us, right? But I mean, if if it is true, that's far out. That's awesome. That's sure um, far out. So, <laughs> it, it, this you know, one thing that I think people should stop and like step back from is um, is ask yourself over the past three years how much more anxious you have been. And I'm I'm gonna. I'm going to say this. I feel like I'm a person who controls his anxiety over world events better than average. As in, you know, my, my anxiety comes more from, you know, my projects or my personal life or something like that. Right. Like, especially my projects, if I'm like building a company, if I have relationships with customers, something like that. Um, for the most part, I feel like you know, you might as well be a little bit happy-go-lucky in terms of the way geopolitical events unfold, because if you're not directly involved, you can't pull any levers to affect that situation, right? And so I've always thought, you know what, maybe one of these, maybe there will be a World War III and I'll just die in it. Well, okay. You know, okay, maybe that happens when I'm, when I'm 53. Maybe that happens when I'm 67. Maybe it, maybe it might have happened when I was 33. I don't know. But you know what? Uh, <laughs> if you're worried about all the risks in life, I mean, it's also the case that I could have been hit by a stray bullet. You know, one of my wife's coworkers was hit by a stray bullet in the head at a gas station like two, three years, maybe three years ago. Yeah, she had a um, you know, difficult recovery. She didn't die, fortunately. Holy shit. Um, stuff wow, like that's random, random things happen right? Random things do happen. Any of us can be killed on any day, whether it's a car accident, whether it's a fire, or, you know, um, an entire, a few years ago, I remember seeing on the news, an entire neighborhood blew up because of uh, like a gas pipe, a gas leak, right? I mean, you, you don't even know. You might as well accept a certain amount of risk in life. Okay, geopolitics is one of them. Right. So I, I guess I don't get too anx you know, anxious. I did get anxious, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, more than I usually do. And so I'm sure that everybody else also got much more anxious than they usually do. And there are people with anxiety disorders. Right. There are people who had already been primed 
to think of whatever was going on as part of something larger, whether it's like a Trump derangement syndrome thing, or it's, you know, um, the far left is taking over the world. And I'm not even saying that's not happening, though. I think that that's, I think that that's a skin of, you know, that that's one skin that you could view the larger Leviathan is wearing. Um, so, you know, I, I think that all of these different things are being thrown out at us. I bet that they're being A-B tested. And are you familiar with A-B testing? Do you know what that refers yeah, to? Absolutely. I, I think sometimes that that's not even necessary. They just have to find many alternative places for people to get lost at this stage. Maybe, maybe. But I, I assume at this point, you know, since learning what A-B testing was, you know, 20 something years ago. Um, this is where um, for anybody anybody in the audience who doesn't know the term terminology, but let's say that you have a landing page, a web page, and people go there. And maybe it's maybe it's news, right? Maybe you have two different articles that are mostly the same, but slightly different. Maybe the headline is the only thing that's different. And you show these two audiences. And then you see whether or not they buy a product or you see whether or not they register for the site or something like that. And so now you've tested to see what moves people, you know, which button, you know, which, which emotional button was the better button. So you can uh, refine your messaging, refine your headline building uh, in order to know how to manipulate people's emotions. For sure. I agree with that. I think that they've adjusted the, the pro-vax narrative that way. They've adjusted the no virus narrative that way. And they've adjusted the gain of function virus narrative in that way. Maybe, maybe. I don't know if the no virus people are necessarily connected to big tech in that way. I, 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 and maybe they are, you know, for all I know they are. I, I, and I think that a lot of things that would be AB testing may have been sucked into a different methodology. Um, when we brought in the Themis report author, uh, Kristen, um, you know, she, she looked at telegram groups while putting together the Themis report. And I have been, I, I didn't know telegram before, the pandemic, you, know, you can only handle so many of these different communications tools and social media. And, and at some point, it just like, it's going to take over your mind if you sign up for a fifth and a sixth one. And I was invited, I was invited into 12 different um, of telegram groups in like the, a period of two weeks. It was absurd. For a year and a half, I declined all invitations and I'm glad that I did now that I'm there. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad that I understand it, though. I'm glad that I've been there enough to understand it. It seems like a place where a lot of traffic can be easily manipulated, where you can create uh, good, solid echo chambers. And I think echo mm -hmm. chambers themselves perform some of the function of A-B testing. Absolutely. If a person sticks around in the echo chamber, you know, that's your test. And yep. it, it may not be that you even know, need to know the perfect, you know, string to pull or something like that, just that you can, you know, get people in an echo chamber around a topic. I wonder why you even think of this as a mathematician that, you know, a lot of these things are just trying to use up people's useful time. Every time, that you, every minute that you spend on Telegram, you're not writing another Substack article. Every time I spend on Telegram, I'm not doing another stream. I'm not reading a primary paper and figuring things out. And it could just be, you know, throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks as a distraction, as a as a confusion mechanism, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where we're headed. That's where that's where this whole conversation was intended to head. We're in the middle of something that is very large. Right. Um, and there is fifth generation warfare. Clearly, there's cognitive warfare. Clearly. 
And I think that it's it's a giant distraction to keep the American people from steering the ship. And I believe that that's true because I, I personally thought from the beginning of the, uh, the, the plandemonium, I like that better than plandemic. Mm-hmm. I think that plandemic is even part of that game to, to keep our attention on the pandemic, on this virus and disease, right? When there is you know, much more, I think many more people will die due to starvation. Many more people will die due to whatever changes are happening on the economic landscape. And now that I've talked through, you know, I've talked through some of this with Mark and with uh, the guy who goes by John Cullen and, you know, different people um, and whether or not we, we agree on each detail or, or, or each you know, individual fact specifically, um, it, it, it helps me form a model where I, you know, like when, when I noticed, you know, the encircling of Asia from Ukraine, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, when I noticed how well that encircled Asia and controlled the gas pipelines, controlled Belt and Road, controlled gas pipelines, control Iran by being on both sides of Iran, right? It, it felt, you know, it felt like this is so much bigger of a prize than anything that's being debated in the pandemic. Even, even, even if we think that pharma surveillance is a major threat. And I do think that that's a major threat. I think that the fact that uh, we have five pharmaceutical companies on trial for, for funding terrorism in the Middle East speaks to that. You know, what were they doing there? They were setting up hot, they were, they were essentially the funding, the funding of terrorists was essentially paying them bribes in order to be able to set up hospitals. You know, what does that tell you about the, the true value of those hospitals that they would be willing to go to that link to fund people who are killing us soldiers allegedly mm-hmm. okay. there's a court case. So I should say allegedly. Right. Um, <laughs> so I'll stop it allegedly. Um, but you know, when I see all that, I think, you know, this is, this is the larger prize, which is control of world economics, whatever happens after the dollar, the U S wants to be in control. I'll even say that I'll even throw out the possibility that there are worse paths than the US being in control. On the other hand, it does seem like the US government has just gone totally off the rails, right? <laughs> like I think I think it's it's much easier to make the argument that that 70 years ago that we were doing, you know, the world a great service, policing the oceans. And there, there are plenty of people who are just like, you know, why should we pay to, to do all that? Why should we pay to police the oceans? Well, we sucked the money back through the Cantillon effect, um, through seniorage, seniorage, uh, printing the, the money. You know, maybe, maybe that's the, maybe it's a fair trade on that level. Maybe though, we're not even getting as much from seniorage now that Russia's dumped treasuries. Uh, you know, China has, sometimes scaled back on absolute levels, but certainly isn't the marginal buyer any longer, right? So there is something very large going on. I think there's a planned decoupling of the East-West economies. And I think that that decoupling, there's almost no way for that not to result in the deaths of at least tens of millions of people. It's hard for me to imagine there will not be levels of, you know, starvation, riots, internal conflicts. Um, and perhaps the U.S. federal government wants 
Americans distracted enough with other problems and each other in order not to really participate in the sculpting of the new direction of the world. Now that's a hypothesis and I don't, I'm not married to it. I also think that there may be a group of people who think that we are entering something like, you know, post Rome, that there will be chaos, not even post Rome, maybe like post bronze age, right? This was a, you and I had this discussion very briefly off air uh, last time we talked about, uh, you know, Ovid's uh, metamorphoses, right? And a lot of people, you know, don't necessarily know the name Ovid, but if you study, um, you know, ancient epics, you know, Ovid is right up there with like Homer, you know, metamorphoses is right up there with the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? So um, Ovid's metamorphoses was about this chaotic sort of, um, you know, post-governance period, you might call it, where the centralized governance broke down. And then you have these stories that are the, the change that went on during the eras between the major versions of civilization. And I think that, that there's something about that. Like, I actually wonder, I really do wonder if COVID was chosen to point to Ovid or as sort of like an internal code of some sort, because it is a little bit eerie, right? Especially, I mean, and, and we've had years of discussions by the public intellectuals, you know, talking about what happens if the U.S. is like Rome and the U.S. breaks down. And, you know, are there barbarians at the gate? I even wonder too, if like the whole thing about people, you know, coming across the borders is about, um, you know, making it feel like there's as much chaos as possible. Not that it's not real, just like COVID, it can be real and it can also be to create an illusion. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, you know, why is it that certain problems um, of, you know, sort of chaotic immigrant populations, I think, you know, a lot of people want to talk about it being Islam or radical Islam or whatever, but you let any group of people across borders into Europe while Europe is heading toward a state of disarray with uh, energy, energy concerns and, you know, all the other failures of Europe, um, you know, terrible planning in Europe. Uh, maybe they've been steered to terrible planning. I don't know, but it sure feels like that to me, man. My my family and I are right now torn because my mother-in-law is probably the sweetest woman in the universe, and she's not going to be with us forever. And part of the thing that my wife and I are deciding right now is how how can we justify living in America all on our own while she's in the Netherlands all on her own. And right now, the only thing that holds us here is that the Netherlands is on the verge of collapse. Like population, culture is all in this huge flux because that's what all this, the, the farmers protests were about. That's what all of this stuff was about because the Netherlands is really at the center the Netherlands and Germany of this reorganization of the whole culture of Europe. And they have, done some extremely crazy things with immigration in the Netherlands, giving away massive, I mean, imagine if in the, in America, we were giving houses away to people who cross the border, like houses, because they're doing that in the Netherlands. They are, they are providing state houses to immigrants before Dutch people, and they are providing them with subsidies, which are not small or just to get by, but are like, big enough for the average Dutch citizen that's kind of not doing so well for themselves to go, what in the hell is going on here? And that's that's something that 
I don't know that I want to bring my kids back into for three or five years to watch them watch that bonfire burn. Um, but I also don't want my wife to have to live in the United States away from her mom um, for the last five or 10 years of her life, just because, you know, like you said, I mean, there's only certain things that are really important in life. And if you have all your priorities straight, then, you know, the, the, the machinations of the world aren't something that you can really control. And so for us, one of the few things we can tr control is who we surround ourselves with. And so we're, we're having a hard time deciding that right now. She has a wonderful family in the Netherlands and uh, they could use us over there. We could use a grandma because like, you know, my parents don't talk to me anymore. So my kids don't have any grandparents here. And it's a, uh, it's an ongoing situation because it's not great here. We just had the, the, the train crash and burn 59 miles from my house. For all I know, my backyard's covered in dioxin. And uh, I just, I don't know. It's, it's hard, man. It's, it's one of these things now where I, I, I don't know where the worst place is, but I'm convinced, I think like you, that, that the people that are trying to run this ship into the ground understand that the only system where people still have a chance of freeing themselves is the American system. That's the only place where dissidents have a chance of turning things around. So that's why the whole focus feels like it's on disrupting American system trust and, and making sure, as you said, that the American people aren't capable of governing themselves. <clears throat> and, you know, I'll, I'll go a little further than that. Um, are, are you familiar with uh, Peter Zihan? Oh, definitely. He's scary. He's scary, dude. But he's the guy who got me thinking about the inverted population pyramid and about how the increase in all-cause mortality was expected and that they might have just said that the pandemic was happening at the statistical time when the rise in all-cause mortality would correlate and it would be easy to explain away. Yeah, I'm just going to tell Jen, I don't know, like uh, China um, literally changed their population estimate downward by 100 million people. This was like six or eight months ago Yeah, or something like that, um, which that is very frightening to think about. Uh, we have no idea what's going on in China. I've always um, I, I've said for many years, I've told people, look, the Great Wall of China is more about us not seeing into there than them not seeing our culture or, or the truth or something like that. No, um, you know, I know so many people from China, they, they don't have that much of a problem getting basic truth from the Western world. That's not it. it, it it's to stop us from seeing inside China. Yeah, and, and I, I, I don't doubt that at all. You know who you should have on your show sometime is my friend Piper. She would be so great for you to talk to about. You've China. mentioned her. I'd be happy yeah. to talk to Piper. It would um, be really great. I would love to hear you guys talk about Chinese history in the recent two, 20 years and about how it kind of gets inverted. I mean... I really think that we have at best a Facebook post understanding of what China really is. You know, Absolutely. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. for people, um, you know, who are watching, I'll just say this quickly, but I've, I've discussed it with, with JJ for um, almost a year and a half now. Um, my personal model of China is that a lot of the power levers in China have been controlled by the West for maybe 200 ish years. I mean, ever since the opium wars, <clears throat> you know, we we uh, we knocked down the empire that was there. I, I say we. At first, it was the the British Navy, and then it was the British U.S. 
France and other people in the Second Opium War. But but then after uh, Pin Yi, that was a little six-year-old emperor. I think they had a six-year-old emperor resign so that nobody had to lose face over it. But then that sparked the moment that was the competition between the nationalists and the communists. And eventually the U.S. State Department funded the communists, not Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek was then relegated to Taiwan. So we chose who had the mainland, essentially. Uh, and I think that um, people should look at this history of China stealing technology from the U.S. and ask, is that the Western corporate glove reaching through China to exfiltrate technology? Who would know what technology that the DOD has locked up that could be useful to industry? Would it be China in the 1980s that would know that? No, they had just rebooted their, their, their university system, right? The people who would know what technology is locked up are the corporations who work with the DOD. And it would be way better to have somebody else blamed for going and, and you know, um, uh, compromising DOD officials, bribing them, whatever. I never understood this technology. argument before until right now. Now I'm starting to see what you mean by this. I, I heard you argue this before and I didn't really understand it. But what you're suggesting is, is that any intellectual property in that that would be developed by the DOD would not be able to just enter the commercial market after a certain time, just willy-nilly, but would need to have a a pathway out that wouldn't belie the the sort of good you, old you need to go around both IP yeah. law and that's what and, I mean yes. and classification at the same time. Right. right. No, I see it. That's really crazy. Right. I guess I should have made that argument before. I, I see it from a lot of different angles. I've thought about this for years when I've noticed you know different clues and different reasons to 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 view that as the the model of China. Um, but yeah, the intellectual property locked up in the in the DOD. That's a biggie, right? Um, <clears throat> and, and it may be at this point, it may even be a business model to lock it up, right? Lock it up. And then you have um, protected classes within the deep state who are the only ones who can perform that China mm -hmm. back to US maneuver, right? Nobody, nobody else, nobody else can use that IP. I can't develop a business using it. So anyhow, um, so somebody, uh, Mark jumps in, he says, you need to review how GTE Telecom was used to sell DOD Boeing Intel property in the 1980s. See uh, Bernie Zettel case. So um, oh, here we go. The, uh, that's one that I, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll have Mark uh, talk about that. With me on, Mark. I told you you should have come on. <laughs> <laughs> he has the link. He can jump in if he wants. Actually, Mark, you're welcome to. Uh, and and JJ, if, if you if if you're at a point at which you you have to go, if Mark wants to jump in, I I can be here for longer. We could wrap this up now, or we could keep going. But so much to say because you know I I think that that you know my model of what's the pandemonium is one of constant showering of propaganda, the fire hose of propaganda, which is. You know, I'm calling it Hegelian pinball. I came up with that term like 18 months ago, and I should have said it out loud more. I should have explained what I meant, but I wasn't even certain what I meant yet. And now there are just so many instances of it that I feel more and more certain that it's the case that we're being inundated with very serious debates, though some of them are serious and nonsensical. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a mixture of that. That's the point. If you mix truth and nonsensical, you're you're winning. I mean, and this fits into my uh, my gang's model, which is governance by aggressive nonsensical guruism. Mm -hmm. And and you know, let's look back. Um, I, I I don't know how much I've I, I think I've told you some of this, but <clears throat> woke culture. You know, where did woke culture come from to begin with? One of the biggest sources of woke culture came from within the DOD. You know, we know about all these weird DOD operations, like the way they changed the ending in Animal Farm uh, in order to give a happy ending to Western audiences. Oh, you know what? It's going to work its way out. It's it's just fine. No, that's not the way the book ends. The book ends with like a knife fight between, you know, the pig and the and the farmer next door and the other animals can't even tell them apart anymore. They don't know who's who, and they don't know their own history, and they just, you know, they're, they're exhausted. They're caught. Did I ever tell you that that mm -hmm. I listened to that on a way on the way home to uh, Christmas um, a couple of years ago with my kids in the car, and it went from like, "Wow, this is a crazy story. Wow, this is dark. Oh my gosh!" <laughs> it was. My kids were so affected by that because it was a really well-read oral book too, but it was pretty impressive because. Yeah, it's a great story, but it doesn't end happy. <laughs> Quiet Coney says the new ending came from the CIA. That's sort of true. The CIA and the DOD both worked on that project. But the the um, but here's the thing. Even though uh, it was a CIA guy, by the way, it was one of the people who worked as one of the plumbers in the Watergate scandal <laughs> was involved in that project. But all of like like the cartoonists. The, the actual cartoon was brought into the DOD because it was the DOD who had relationships with cartoonists in the industry, right? It's like the DOD works with Disney, the DOD works with, you know, all, all these other groups um, in Hollywood. Um, so, you know, the, the story that's publicly told a little more often is that it came from the CIA, but you, you kind of look back into the full details and there's one CIA guy, he's kind of a communication liaison, but the work seem and the orders seem to have come at the DOD level. So, um, you know, uh, one way or another. So, um, you know, I'm going to go back to Peter Zihan because we kind of got sidetracked. Oh, yeah, that's right. About that. and, and I think that this is important because a lot of people do feel like, hey, the U.S. is the place where, you know, freedom could be maintained. And that's why there's this focus on us in the U.S. and trying to break us down. Um, Peter Zihan, and you said he's scary. I know that there are people who, who feel like he might be like CIA. There are people who feel like he might be some sort of operative of some sort. Um, I think operative of some sort is more likely specifically than the CIA, because I think that there are more corporate agents than people think. I mean, right? I know he's got a lot of practice, but he is one of the sharpest presenters out there. Like he what he is presents, very well practiced. He is freaking smooth as silk. I mean, man alive. You know, he can wear the goofiest tie that doesn't match his shirt, and he is smooth as silk. It's impressive. And he gets to say, I'm a libertarian as he presents <laughs> as he presents what he presents. But you know, I'm gonna go back. Uh his first uh his first book, at least as far as I know, was The Accidental Superpower. And it is a fantastic book. I mean, it's really exceptional. And I and I have no particularly strong reason to argue with this thesis. Um, he kind of argues against, or actually, in a sense, he argues for the magic dirt theory, but in a very specific economic sense. 
the U.S. really is the crown jewel, the economic crown jewel of the world, right? When you consider the advantages, you know, transport, transport on water, you know, the, the level of friction, it costs so much less energy to move goods along water. And the U.S. has the best waterways by far in the entire world. You know, the amount of navigable waterways, um, you, you can't combine, you know, 10 nations. You know, certainly China doesn't have that. They have like two or three major rivers that they can move stuff on. But uh, you know, a lot of it's uh, heavily polluted. A lot of it's, um, you know, not necessarily, um, you know, full at, at, at all places in order to be able to do that. Uh, you know, Europe. Um, Germany has good internal waterways. And that's part of the reason, like, they weren't, um, you know, the deep sea power that, Britain and France and the Dutch were and the Spanish, Portuguese, uh, they had, um, you know, they came along as an economic titan later than those powers that had the reserve currencies and the reserve currency seems to pass between deep ocean powers. But uh, uh, Germany did become highly productive because of internal waterways, but still nothing close to what the US has. And the US has this amazing spread of resources. And it's all constituted in this fabulous defensive position. I mean, we've got Canada to the north, but really, you know, the majority of their population is within a few miles of the U.S. border. Um, it, they're not really all that adversarial for the most part. Sure, I guess we have to think about whether or not terrorists could come over the, you know, the northern border. Mexico, the U.S. is kind of growing into, and this is something that Zihan talks about in his most recent book. The, the immigrants who are sort of, you know, causing more trouble <clears throat> are the immigrants that are coming up from, from, you know, failed states of Central America, you know, uh, Honduras, Guatemala. Um, uh, I don't want to call them failed completely, but, you know, very difficult economic circumstances. Maybe failing. Um, for the most part, the U.S. actually plays pretty well with Mexico and Mexicans assimilate to U.S. culture pretty well. And this is, you know, Zihan points out, this is why, you know, a lot of Mexicans at the U.S. border voted for Trump, for instance, right? Um, that's a much different assimilation puzzle. It's a much, you know, much lower level of um, feeding gangs in inner cities than with, uh, you know, and the Mexicans come, they have ready-made communities all over the U.S., right? If you want your kids to, you know, grow up in a moral community, right? If you're Mexican, you have that option in almost every major city in the U.S., even if you're poor. You can put yourself into the Mexican ghetto, and if you want your kids to be have the chance to work their way out of it, that opportunity is available. It's different if you are from a community where there's no one major city that has more than 3,000 people from your country. So it, it's a much different situation at the border. Um, but the U.S. and Mexico are growing together. I think part of... Uh, Part of what we can see from prior to the pandemonium is the U.S. was already shopping through Southeast Asia to relocate factory production. We were doing our best to pivot from China already. We were doing best to pivot to Mexico and to Southeast Asia. The U.S. and Mexico are growing together. You can see it in the city that I live in, in Dallas. In Dallas, you know, you're, Dallas is like this, the U.S. hub of the superhighway of goods coming from Mexico. We have um, you know, warehouses everywhere along Highway 35. And it's building up more and more tech companies that are um, able to more uh, easily interface 
with um, you know, manufacturing, right? There's so much of that in Dallas. The city is growing and growing and growing. It is becoming the the most, uh, it, it will be in not long, the largest um, metropolitan area in the U.S. How close is it to Houston? Um, how close, distance or yeah. size? Distance. Oh, I don't know. Are we a six-hour drive? Oh, okay, it's far away then. I don't know. Dallas is looking really big on the map to me now. Like it's, it's going to eclipse Houston very soon, right? I mean, Houston's yeah. still technically bigger, isn't it? I mean, you know, area-wise, Dallas is much. DFW is much bigger already. Okay. And, and if you actually look up the cities in in DFW, it, it's a very weird circumstance because we are an amalgam. You know, the actual city of Dallas itself is a small proportion of the population. It's kind of like St. Louis in that way, but even more, you know, amplified. Um, you've got Dallas, Fort Worth, Arlington, Plano, Richardson, Frisco, oh, Denton. Before, yeah. And, and 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 what gets called the Metroplex goes all the way up to this place called Wichita Falls, which is like an hour and a half northwest of where I live and on the border of Oklahoma. Right? That's like the Metroplex is so large that there are parts of it that it would take two and a half hours with no traffic to drive between. That's how big it is now. Do and, you like uh, that? I mean, does that feel good? I would be really afraid of that many people, but I'm just. <laughs> I, um, I'll i be honest, because Dallas is such, is just the most giant sprawl in the world. I, I think about where I may want to live next, you know, but I, and I don't know, you know, I have, I have some friends here. I have some very good friends here, but um, I, I do think about the possibility of relocating as it becomes more and more unwieldy. I don't know. Uh, anyhow, you know, moving on. So, you know, Zihan, even if, even if, um, even if I can't fully trust his motivations, uh, and he does in his last book, it's actually, I, I'm, I'm listening to the uh, audio book right now. Listen to like three quarters of it. And he's awfully harsh. Like he, he, he attacks the anti-vaxxers with no information. You know, he just makes like, you know, like sly comments you know, that sort of implies that that people who didn't think that the COVID vaccines were working were were just sort of, you know, were, were the Neanderthal Americans. Um, but it, it does give you an idea of where he's coming from. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of glad that he, you know, bared his soul on that level, right? That he's willing to be such a, you know, harsh propagandist on that level. Like he makes no arguments whatsoever. Um and, and, and it's not important to his book. He just throws it in. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, <clears throat> but he talks about why did like the, there are certain resources that the U S has that are important for um, technology that China has none of internally. Right. And so, you know, what appears to be going on behind closed doors is a large uh, negotiation between the U S and China. The U S is telling China, look, whatever this is, whether or not we're losing control that we had previously, but, you know, whether you're trying to build the Belt and Road Initiative and actually have your own, you know, your own nation for you rather than the West controlling it, maybe that's going on in China, right? Maybe Xi Jinping really is bringing power home, but the U.S. says, you know what, you have to bend the knee. That's just it. You know, look, we're, we're unplugging economically. Watch what happens. We're going to unplug this one. We're going to unplug this one. Look, now you can't make better than 14 nanometer chips. We're going to unplug this one. What's happening to your economy now? And I think that that is uh, 
that that is a large part of why it is that this Hegelian pinball is going on. That's the thing that Americans would truly. And you you can't. And just to be devil's advocate, I just want to want you to briefly address the notion that maybe America and China are somehow cooperating, or do you think on some level they might be? This is, I guess, negotiating, cooperating. Yes, I I I, I do think that there there's both cooperative game theory and and uh, non-cooperative adversarial game theory. Absolutely, you know. These are two huge nations. Right. The, yeah. the level of complexity of such negotiation has never been seen on the global scale. So it would be stupid for me to put a, an oversimplified pin in any of it. Yeah, I agree. It's so tempting, though. You know, people ask all the time for a very simple pin, and that's the trick. Um, right. And that's part of the Hegelian dialectic. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Simple, and simple problem, simple solution. Duh. Yep. Yeah. I, I, and one thing I would want anyone to do, like I, 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 you know, my last article, I told people, hey, you know, do what you can to step back before, like, you know, having a, a take that you marry yourself to. I said, um, you know, step back and try to explain your take as well as possible to see if there's bias that could be toyed with. Right. And, and, you know, do you have bias can be toyed with? Do you have a full set of information? One thing I would ask people is which ethnic group ran the last dynasty of China? Right. For people to ask that question, it, can you answer that question? What does it mean if you can't answer that question? To, how does that affect your model of China? Right. Um, for the most part, we hear about the Han Chinese as the ruling class, but it but was that's not who they gave it to, right? It was this much, much smaller population that ran China for nearly three decades before Pinyi. Pinyi was not Han. He was Manchu. And when the Manchu took over as the last dynasty of China, there were only like 110 or 120,000 of the Manchus. And the Manchus were this population. They, um, you know, they sort of, they, they evolved a lot over the centuries. They came from that same area, you know, Genghis Khan, the steppes, the Mongol steppes. Um, originally, they, they moved sort of northeast in, um, you know, what we think of as Soviet territory and then came down the coast. And everywhere they went, they assimilated into that culture pretty well. Right. I guess that's part of, you know, how, how a group survives very often. But somehow, once they got into the Chinese coast, northeast coast, um, somehow... They wound up in a situation which they could take power as a dynasty. And I think this is probably at least in part due to the fact that the much larger Han population, which is like literally like a thousand times as large when the Manchu took over, right? I think that that there must have been some sort of internal balancing act that the Manchu could step in and somehow, you know, erect their imperial control. And I don't know Chinese history well enough. I'd love to talk to Piper. I'd love to talk to more people in general. Uh, I'm still trying to work out the game theory of how it is that a such a tiny minority could rule over a much larger ethnic class. It's not even like a minority. Like, you know, we could say, hey, the deep state is similar. Well, the deep state is not a different ethnic group no, <laughs> than right. the, rest of the United States, how right? Things are they? Did the Manchu have their own language? Um, um 
they they because they assimilate well i actually don't know exactly the answer to that question i do know that um they they were known by different names before they were known as the, by the manchu and i'm almost positive yes that they had different languages at different you know points in their development in their history um but i guess i don't what know what you're saying is then that the chinese had their own ashkenazis to deal with ah well, you know, if, if what we want to do is model, like, you know, there are people who, who um, take like very, I don't know, like combative views of, you know, who or what the Ashkenazi Jews are. And there is sort of an interesting question historically, like where did they come from? Or like how much influence did the group, uh, did, if, if funny, uh, it, you know, it's people from the Mongol area that eventually converted to Judaism. Exactly. Um, post, I think, you know, post orange horde, I guess, um, I, again, like I, I'm such an amateur historian. I know enough to get into trouble, so I don't want to go too far, <laughs> but exactly like me, that's exactly how much I know enough to get into trouble. But you know, the, the, the thing about, uh, the Jewish population is being a minority. Um, they were often taking jobs, uh, for European royalty that would not have been offered to Christians or were adversarial with their own populations. Right. And that included money, money changing uh, or, or money dealing in, in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it, you know, eventually uh, this includes, you know, Hollywood, you know, propaganda operations. And so people go the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, but I think that that's like, that, that that's a, a, one of those oversimplified, you know, uh, situations. I, I don't think Israel is controlling the U.S. There's no like that's like a, a a thousand to one power dynamic, right? It's much more likely to me that the U.S. controls Israel. That Israel is sort of an outpost, but it's a again, it's it's somewhat cooperative and somewhat non-cooperative, right? It, you know, people have interests, but it may be that the Manchurians had a somewhat similar um, dynamic in in China. But I think it's probably different, you know, like I, I, I've never heard of like the Manchurians running the banking empire on the whole or something like that. Right. Whereas uh, the Jewish population, their, their relative bank, uh, banking strength came from the fact that the royals did not want their own people running the banks. <laughs> and maybe, maybe something like that happened in the, in the Han population, too. I don't know. <clears throat> but somewhere along the way, the Manchu, they, they got some serious power levers. And, and maybe that was also why the West was able to more easily control China from afar. Maybe the West actually encouraged Manchu control, knowing this is such a small group that there's no way in the world they can really fight Western power. Not only are we the deep sea powers, and we have shown that that's banking dominance, de facto banking dominance. The moment the fighting started, there was no chance that China was winning that battle. So anyhow... Um, that's a little bit. Yep. Of I'm going to kind of look over at the comments and see if anybody's uh, educating me on things that I need to know here. And then, you know, the thing about it that I find most intriguing is that you and I occasionally have these, these um, talks on the border. I, I follow a group that we are in, but I don't understand it all, all the time of what possibility these decentralized digital currencies that aren't controlled by central banks could potentially throw into the mix as far as how this matrix of world control could be, could be 
altered in its course by the existence of Bitcoin or the adoption of Bitcoin or the adoption of any potentially, you know, not controlled by a central power currency. It's, it's, it's for example, the limited mythology that I understand around around the murder of Gaddafi is that he was trying to start an independent currency in Africa tied to gold and sell African oil in that currency. And this system was not going to allow that. So um, they disposed of him. So at what point will, I, I noticed a, a thing in that talk today, for example, I mean, what, what, what kinds of ways do you imagine that they're fighting against that to be sure that they don't lose control of this system? I mean, Bitcoin has to be one of the biggest threats to them. So, yeah, you know, um, I, I still, you know, nobody knows for sure who started Bitcoin, though. Um, for there, there are people who think that Bitcoin came out of DARPA. Oh. And at first I, I was actually I, I didn't like that theory. And maybe that was actually me being emotional about it. Uh, I'll tell you this. I talked to a finance mathematician last week, or maybe it was a week and a half ago. I can't remember exactly, but um, a guy named um, uh, Sidney Bellsberg. Um, I think I've, I've got his name right. He, he did um, you know work at the SIBO, which is actually uh, one of the places where I trained. Um, um, you know, he was... Uh, uh, he's he's a bit older than I am, you know, more than a decade. And so he knew people who were sort of, um, you know, uh, my superiors when I first got to Wall Street when I was 21 years old and, and got to Susquehanna, which was the second hedge fund that I worked for. Um, he, and he he's the inventor of the ETF, by the way, uh, Sid Bellsberg. So um, and that was 30 years ago. So I was talking to uh, Sid and he, he said he thinks that... Um, that you know came out of DARPA, and it, it, he seemed to have a better. Uh, I accepted the argument from him better than I have other people. I've heard other people just go, "Oh, well, so clearly out of the CIA." Oh, oh, don't tell me so clearly. Blah blah. You know, whatever. You know, you can just mumble a conclusion. It's just like the no virus people who go, um, "You know, no virus has ever been isolated." Like that. That's that's a slogan. That's not. Mm -hmm. you know, that's not a discussion. That's a slogan. Right. But. Um, I guess uh, Sid knew Hal Finney, who was the first person to receive a Bitcoin transaction and who, you know, when you go back into the forums, you know, uh, Hal Finney and uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, they're the ones most engaged during the early months of Bitcoin, right? Um, if Satoshi was the first to mine, I think Hal Finney was the second to mine Bitcoin to download the software and make use of it. Um so, you know, I, I think, um, you know, Sid may have more uh, feel for the situation, whether or not he knows, you know, um, he may have more of a, of a feel for it. It's very positive. And, you know, what he said to me was, um, you know, look, it was, you know, it was just after 2008. They were panicked. And I think they meaning, you know, maybe the um, the banking system. And and let's let, let's go back a little bit further than that. There's a mathematician um, named John Nash, one of the greats. Um, I'm gonna I'll, I'm gonna put him as far as like practical like applied math. He's like in the top three of all time. I think you know like you, you got to put him with like Sir Isaac Newton and and guys like that. Um, if people don't know his name, he's he's actually the guy uh, that the movie A Beautiful Mind was made. Yeah. Out. Um, he he you know, suffers from schizophrenia. Suffered he he, dece he was deceased just recently uh, a few years ago, um, but. 
he, you know, once he got past like doing pure math and he did some great pure math, but then he did finance math. And part of this was he had some moment of understanding about economics um, that made him, and this is, this is where you have the schizophrenic brain, right? He got up one day and he was like, oh my God, the world's going to be ripped apart when the dollar fails. And he went and tra traded dollars for Swiss francs and flew to Switzer Switzerland. And he was going to like relocate there because he was just terrified. Right. And so, <clears throat> you know, what went on there? I think that he, that if everyone in the world understood what he understood, maybe the whole world would have panicked. Mm -hmm. But maybe it takes decades for everything to actually sort of break down for everyone to see what's going on. And here's what's going on. There's something called the Triffin Dilemma, the Triffin Paradox. And that is that when one nation's currency is used as the global reserve, that that nation has a conflict of interest with all other nations. What the, with the, the monetary policy that benefits that nation is opposite the monetary policy that benefits all the other nations. And so switching between reserve currencies is a great schism. The last time it happened, we had two world wars, right? I mean, the U.S. was already Britain's, uh, you know, economic feedback loop superior and technological superior before World War I. But something was going to happen, you know, some sort of schism where um, the sterling would fail as the world's reserve currency. And, you know, when the U.S. came in and won World War II, the U.S. was in such the dominant position. You know, you have Bretton Woods. We have 95% of the naval power in the oceans. It's clear that the dollar is king at that point. But what happens when the dollar fails? Is that schism even bigger? Are we risking the actual cataclysmic world war that all of us would have feared as children, you know, hiding under tables, doing nuclear drills? <laughs> like we still why, why does it lead to war and not just collapse like why does why would somebody shoot a nuclear weapon because the dollar went off went down what you have perhaps is a scramble for power during the breakdown process and when when power is so much greater there's so much more harm that it can do Right. And, you know, we can see this in some of the changeovers of the reserve currencies, though, like the first one from the Portuguese to the Spanish. That one happened by marriage. Um, but I, I think the farther you go in the future, the, the uglier it gets. It's an earthquake. And well, you can you can argue that mathematically the this this situation is obviously much more dire than for the pound uh, before World War One. Right or not? I mean, uh, well, I, but the the collapse that could happen is much larger now. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> the weapons are much bigger, certainly. Uh, but one way or another, um, John Nash spent the rest of his life studying ideal money. And if you go and look up ideal money, and by the way, I have all of his saved files. Um, you know. Uh, uh, I realized uh, one day, you know, somebody was talking about a file and they pointed me to a paper that was within his notes at Princeton. And I realized, oh, you can just go through his folders in his Princeton account. They're all still up and you can just download all of his all of wow. his writings and his personal memos and thoughts. So 
Uh, it's a significant know, data point. I did not know this. It's really interesting in light of the movie that they made of him with with a pretty girl named Jennifer Conley and didn't tell us anything about this. Yeah, not only that, they completely, I mean, they, you know, it's Hollywood. They they messed everything up. But yeah, yeah, this is the important part of the story. And by the way, I've never seen the movie still. Oh, <laughs> you don't need to see it. Probably not. I mean, I've seen clips. I know enough about it. Um, I've seen a review of it, but whatever. Um, so, you know, he, he spends the rest of his life studying ideal money. And it's clear that whoever created Bitcoin was very familiar with his writings. Right. And, oh. and, and that may be a pass through from the cypherpunks, right? The cypherpunks were familiar with ideal money. They were familiar with, with John Nash's, you know, explanations. You need an, an extra national currency in order to avoid the Triffin paradox. An ideal money would act as that. And there is debate, like there's debate. Uh, I, I was in a podcast, I don't know, like five Wait, are you for a global currency? Did I just understand you correctly? Are you advocating for a global currency right now, Matt? Okay, um, I'm advocating for the strongest currency to be non-national, if possible, right? And I wouldn't want it to be corporate either. That would be even worse, I think. Okay. You know, like the, the global, the central bank go on digital currency stuff, like that to me is, is that's scarier, right? Mm -hmm. the digital currency allows the possibility of it getting scarier because then it's corporate controlled, or it can get better because it's distributed control. And I think that we need to do everything we can to help whatever succeeds, whether it's Bitcoin or something else, to be something that is not corporate controlled and not national controlled. Otherwise, we will have too much centralization build up in one place. And, um, you know, for those who think of, you know, America is good, I, you know, I would say, think of the people first. But, you know, as good as our government might have started, you know, the amount of centralization of power just became so huge that really awful evil things could be done. Right. I mean, there were some evil things done right away from the get go, you know, especially with, in regards to the Native Americans, you know, 5% of the U.S. population trying to push its territory and business interests could massacre a whole lot of people. And uh, and they probably had their own methods of Hegelian dialectic at the time. I'm sure this is uh, a <laughs> uh, this type of, um, you know, moving of the population goes back many centuries. In fact, the word propaganda goes back to the Catholic Church. Uh, propaganda fide, where the Catholic Church was trying to get back into communities that were being um, that were being or had been taken over by Protestantism. Um, That's another thing we, we, we can't bring it up now, but it's something that dawned on me. I was listening to someone argue about the fact that America is a Christian country, and it, it snapped in my head that wait, what are you talking about? America was a country that was founded on the idea right at the time when the schism had happened and when we were still freshly wounded from this Protestantism. And so we wanted to make a country that kind of was above that Protestant Catholic division and and rose above it from a, a perspective. And I, I think that sometimes gets lost, that historical context of how America and when America formed. And it informs a much more fluid idea of of the american ideal of freedom i think it and you know that's why witchcraft and everything was so rampant during the first hundred years of american 
culture because it was a free place for exploring crazy things too and nutty things too. I, I don't know. I I don't know where I was going with that other than to say that I I I think if you circle back to the big message um, from the very beginning, it has been gut sense obvious to me that this global theater was about and focused on America. Um, it's focused on breaking us and breaking our system and breaking the trust in it. And I have no idea who's doing it. I have no idea how many how many different factions are involved. But Mark and you and others have convinced me that this is a culmination of a much longer plan, a much longer action um, that has had several steps in the making. And, and we have a chance right now, I think, um, to move humanity in a number of different directions and the instability that they've created and intend to take advantage of in their governance move is something that we can also take advantage of if we're if we're lucky and capable, I think. So um, maybe we'll uh, we'll move to wrapping things up here. Um, I, I'm, I'm just going to say what I want people to take away, perhaps from you know, the title, Hegelian Pinball, is to look at what's going on in all of these internet debates, on debates on TV, even debates between entire groups of media, you know, called the mainstream media, the alternative media, you know, the anti-vaxxer media, whatever you want to call it, right? The medical freedom movement media. Um, I think that there are, I think that there's uh, a lot of control over each of these units. And I think that, um, that they, a lot of them are by design to allow this, you know, very strict discussions to take place. And that's why a lot of things look so funny. And that's why, you know, even within the medical freedom movement, which started out with a lot of people trying to tell the truth as loudly as possible. Um, you know, e even from the beginning, there were probably embedded agents. You know, when you realize how big things are, there's no way that there weren't, you know, it's almost a, it, you know, really and truly it, 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 it feels like just a, a stupidly ignorant model to think that there wouldn't be an attempt to embed people, whether that's, you know, Yuri Diegan, although, although I think it's more likely, uh, given my discussions with you and the money that came into that circle, you know, and, and you know, Alina Chan getting a job with the Broad Institute, you know, uh, perhaps these people are, they're given breaks, you know, um, the powers that be don't want to attack them necessarily but to at least put a wall don't go past here mm -hmm. and, that, and, that, and that it binds them into a position where they are part of this hegelian pinball right even if they didn't intend to be they intended to be a truth seeker but ultimately they're a bumper in this game that absolutely perfectly described they are a bumper in the game of bouncing us around it is perfect yes and it's a bumper because they are stable in their position. A lot of these people are stable on one particular thing. The mRNA is terrible, but they'll say nothing about the virus, or the virus doesn't exist. But I don't have any, I don't have any opinion on vaccines. All of these. Oh, thank you. Oh, and look what she brought me. My, my, <laughs> the right look at my wife is thinking. You see that? Well, hold, hold on. Actually, I gave that to JJ for Christmas since he's moving toward the uh, the Star Trek exactly. Enterprise theme. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I'm going to look back once again at the questions before we go. I know that there are more sure. questions and I have time to answer. Uh, if FDR made gold illegal, why wouldn't Bitcoin become illegal? You can try to make it illegal. 
you know, I mean, you know, how most of the internet is people looking at porn, you know, how much of the internet is people looking at illegal porn or doing illegal things, you know, dark, you know, Silk Road, uh, but, you know, necessity is the mother of invention or, or maybe the, maybe, maybe the sister of invention or something like that. Like they, they they're, they're associated. <clears throat> it's hard to make sending packets of information illegal, right? This is where making something illegal is an economic process. You have to, it has to be cheaper to police it than the cost of giving it up. Right. Yeah. That's a very perfect. Yes. That is exactly it. There's an equilibrium and, 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 you know, that that's where the Bitcoiners, you know, feel we're trying to go with this. Uh, Jen asks, do I file taxes? You know, I probably shouldn't even answer questions like that, no matter what the answer is. <laughs> um, there is no law that requires you to file taxes. It's completely voluntary. That's a good answer though. And then, uh, this, um, I actually, you know, I, I will go ahead and answer that. Um, uh, I, I won't answer for my future self because I don't know what I'll do in the future, but I am currently paying taxes because in order, you know, uh, we, we were about to buy a home when we were flooded out in November of 2021 in order to get a bank loan, you know, you need uh, a payment history. So even, even if you are a multimillionaire, you know, if, if all you have on, you know, on paper is, oh, I got like, you know, $30,000 in royalties from, from books in 2021, which is approximately the number. I can't remember. It's a little less than that. Maybe, um, you know, if that's all you have, the banker doesn't go, that's mortgage worthy. Not, I mean, not, I mean, you know, it, it'll matter for a certain amount. Um, but actually, actually they didn't even want to take my royalties into account. I was considered zero income in 2021. So, you know, I know how that goes, man. It's great. It's incredible. But the on the other hand, had you had a very shitty postdoc with a one-year contract at a, a university in the states, the government would have said, "Oh, that's great. You have a constant income. It's only a pauper's income. That's all right. We'll give you a loan anyway." So anyway, I wanted to get into. I, I want to get into one mortgage before I think about whether or not I'm going to play certain games. <laughs> um, <laughs> The prosecution of witches was likely tied to stamping out of a pre-Christian mystery cult that had psychedelic rituals. Um, Brian Moraris SQ, uh, the immortality key. I don't know this story. I've heard um, that. Uh, you know, I, I've I've heard snippets of, of various stuff. Uh, I also heard uh, somebody claim that it was actually the Jews, um, that, like the Salem witch trials. Uh, that, that there was like this grand conspiracy to hide the fact that it was just the Jews. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm not, I, I think, I think uh, I'm, I'm on the outside of that theory, but um, I'm not trying when to. When are we going to do this? Uh, when are we going to do this? Um, this, this uh, no leadership dinner in Pittsburgh that we were talking about. <sighs> I've got so many things going on. Um, Maybe right, in the now, spring right now, I feel more important to get the education company started. Good. And, and, um, the education company, it looks like I'll, you know, if I include Liam, uh, I'd be starting with, uh, three employees and maybe Liam is, you know, uh, maybe he does 80% of his work with rounding the earth and 20% of his work with the other. Um, but, uh, I've, I've got somebody joining the team, uh, later this week. Uh, I, I won't say her name. I, I don't need to make that public or anything. And, and there's a guy that I've talked to who, um, may be good for handling the website and other projects. But, you know, um, 
I'll mention right now because this is something that that you know uh, I've talked to you about, about you being a part of. You know, other than making my curriculum thousands of pages of it just freely available, and I say freely, but I, I think we're going to do something like a subscription where you know if, if you pay a fifty dollars subscription fee now you can download Infinite, right? And we'll and we'll try to add to that as we go, and that money will fund that, so it won't be like a huge. It'll be like the cost of a textbook, right? Or a cheap textbook, frankly. Um, uh, but then uh, um, that's not a huge moneymaker. What I do think would be, uh, there are things that would be good moneymakers that would then fund, you know, the rest of the company, make sure that everybody has, um, you know, stable employment. And one Don't of give them, all those ideas away yet. Yeah, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say it. Maybe I should. <laughs> there is, there is a, a sort of a protected market that I understand well enough um, that for instance, you could be an instructor in that involves certain levels of spe specialization. I could be an instructor in that market. You could, um, you know, a number of people that we know could, uh, maybe Jessica Rose. Uh, I'm going to talk with her about it at some point. Uh, I've, I've already just sort of messaged with her about it a little bit. So that's a possibility. But, um, you know, it could create solid incomes for a number of people doing good and productive work. And frankly, in, in, in the, the community that it's in, there's there's a great need for it because it is a community that is educated but highly brainwashed. And maybe that's a clue to some people. But I actually have a number of different directions that I would like to go. And having a few good people with me, I think will make that you know very reasonably possible. So anyhow, we'll wrap things up here. This is a long discussion, a very good discussion. Um uh, thank yeah, you. I'm sorry I made you sorry I made you meander so much. You know that's how it works with me. You're no, you're, uh, you know, it, it is a meandering topic. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're moving around the whole pinball machine, right? How can you have this discussion without looking at uh, different parts of the pinball machine and, and how the game goes ding, 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 ding. And <laughs> man, now I got my, I got the ultimate Christmas gift in mind for you now. That's perfect. All right. Well, anyway, that's, that's where I'm going to leave that. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for joining us and we will see you. Uh, well, we're we're going to be uh, live tomorrow with um, Kristen Elizabeth again, uh, talking about some uh, interesting things going on in the medical freedom movement. Thanks for joining us and we will see you again on the other side. Mm -hmm.